All right, well, hey, it has, it's been a minute, hasn't it? Uh, if this is like your first time here, I've been away for three months. Uh, that's, that's the mm-hmm there. Um, so uh, because it's been a minute, uh, I thought it would be good to hit pause from the narrative lectionary, which we've been following, which is this tool to help us see the, the big overarching story of scripture and uh, for me to do a little bit of a sabbatical reflection for you. Um, by the way, how awesome is that picture? Uh, this is not what sabbatical looked like for me, by the way. Uh, I didn't spend the whole time on a red Adirondack chair. It was restful, but I still have a two and a half and almost six month old, right? So I was, there was still lots of running around, not just uh, sitting back on a, a red chair. Um, but this was one of the first pictures that popped up when I searched sabbatical. So I thought that was pretty funny. Um, so uh, I will just acknowledge uh, up front, um, because this is sabbatical reflections, there's a lot of talk about me in it, uh, which may not make it like, you know, a normal sermon, but we'll do this this one time and then we'll jump back into uh, normal uh, sort of sermon stuff. Um, but as we get ready to jump in this morning, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, uh, we give you thanks for the gift of this community gift of our, our siblings in Christ. Thank you for the gift that it is. Uh, thank you for this, this chance th- this morning to come together to see one another and uh, to open the scriptures and wrestle with them. And as we do that, um, God, we yield ourselves to your spirit. We ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the way of Jesus. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, when I, uh, during my sophomore year of college, I did a semester abroad where I spent uh, six weeks, six, seven weeks in New Zealand, uh, just shy of a week in Australia, and six, seven weeks in China. And uh, if you've ever done like a semester abroad or a cross-cultural sort of experience like this, you know that it's like a really incredible, formative one, right? Like, it's not just the cool stuff. It's not just, like, taking surfing lessons in New Zealand, which, by the way, I was terrible at. But it's also, like, this, like, stepping out of, like, what's your normal, right? Stepping out of what's your your comfort zone and experiencing the way that other people in other parts of the world live. And so, like, this was absolutely my experience. It was, like, this incredible, formative experience for, like, 12 weeks that we were uh, traveling. And as our time was wrapping up, our leader, who had been doing this for something like close to 10 years at this point, which, by the way, like, how hard of a job is that? Like, that's, that's pretty great. Uh, yes, very high. Sure, yes, yes. I'll just sit down, right? I mean, yeah. Um, boy, yeah. How great of a job is that? There we go, yes, yeah. Um, he, uh, he sat us down with all of this like 10 years of wisdom and said, when you get back, there's going to be one question that people ask you. And that question is going to be, how was your trip? Everybody's going to ask you this question. Like your closest family members all the way down to that person that you had a class with one time last year. Uh, everybody's going to ask you this question, how was your trip? And you're going to have this impulse and this urge to lay out every little minute detail of the last three months of your lives. And I'm just going to be honest with you. of people don't care. (laughs) There's going to be like a small 5% that will actually care about all of that, but the 95% of people just want to hear, good, and you move on, right? (laughs) And this was really helpful advice for us because um, it was really disorienting stepping back into real life. Like Even like my closest friends, my roommates, uh, when I would talk about my time, started to mock me. I would be like, well, when I was in China, and they would all look at each other and go, when I was in China. And I was like, okay, like I need to talk about the last three months of my life, right? 
So it was like this disorienting experience, but it was also a helpful warning because like, it was really overwhelming for people because there was a few times I slipped up and I started seeing their eyes roll back into their head and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm oversharing, aren't I? Uh, I've been thinking about this story a lot as I step out of sabbatical into like real life and like the main question that most people have asked me so far is, how was sabbatical? And I'm like, I want to tell you every single little minute detail of the last three months of my life, but I know that your eyes are going to start to roll back and all you want to hear is, good. So uh, how was sabbatical? It was good. Um, uh, while I was away, I had a conversation with a buddy of mine who um, I haven't got to talk to for the last couple of years and I haven't seen him even longer than that. And uh, as I'm standing in his kitchen and he's making us coffee, he said, um, there's a way of catching up uh, where you can talk about all of the things that you've done, all the things that you've accomplished, all of the experiences you've had. Um, but that doesn't really like, catch me up on like, what life has been like. I was like, oh, that's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that uh, for later. But then he was like, but a Cliff Notes version can be helpful. So give me a Cliff Notes version of, of your life the last couple of years. So here's a Cliff Notes version of the last uh, few months of my life. Uh, sabbatical began and Allie and I went on vacation with her family. Really good time to uh, like start sabbatical to get out of here and like disconnect from the real world. Uh, following that, I went on a fishing trip with my brothers. Uh, and then we were here for a good long time. We did some day trips, but stayed in, in the parsonage. Uh, and uh, the way that we structured my sabbatical was like during a work day, I had a half day to myself to kind of do whatever I wanted. So um, one of my goals was to cultivate a more contemplative posture. So I spent a lot of time by myself, a lot of time in silence, a lot of time walking, praying, that sort of thing. Uh, did a lot of reading, uh, did a lot of like wrestling with packs and changing diapers and doing all the family things that, you know, working may prevent you from doing. And I was really grateful for that. Once we got to August, uh, we moved, or we went to uh, South Bend for a month, uh, where we moved uh, from to Canton. And uh, we still have some good friends there and family, and so that was a really good time hanging out with them. Uh, the Airbnb that we stayed at was across the street from a river, so I spent a lot of time fishing. How did that get in there? That's embarrassing. Uh, but while it's up there, enjoy that. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, and yeah, so that was a really good time. We came back, kind of soaked up the last few weeks, and I capped it off by celebrating my 30th birthday uh, and went back to South Bend for a Notre Dame game for their first one of the season. I don't want to talk about any other games before that, particularly the first one. Uh, yeah, and so that was a brief recap of my sabbatical. Um, going back to what my friend said, um, that only tells you a little bit about it, right? Um, that tells you what I did on sabbatical. Um, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what sabbatical did to me, right? Um, now, if you've ever done any sort of like deep sort of soul work like that, uh, you know that there's a lot of like intimate personal stuff of that. But one story that I, I will share uh, is one that um, comes from Matthew chapter 3. And it was a story from, uh, from Matthew's gospel that I thought about a lot. Uh, it was one that acted as like a, a bit of a framework or a meta narrative for my sabbatical, and it was one that like brought some things to the surface. So, the story comes from Matthew chapter three, uh, starting in verse thirteen. We read, "Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me?' But Jesus answered him, "'Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness.' Then he consented." And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. 
And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is uh, one of the moments through the gospel that feels like you know, time and space gets a little bit thin and like the curtains pulled back and we get to see some things that maybe uh, we wouldn't normally be privileged to see. And Jesus uh, comes up out of the waters of, of baptism, this tradition that like, has continued on into Christianity all these 2,000 years later. And as he's coming up, like, the light gets intense, right? The heavens are opened and we hear this voice coming from above that says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Now this raises an interesting question of like, what has Jesus done in his life up to this point? Not a whole lot, right? <laughs> we don't see a whole lot of like what Jesus has done. We know an awful lot about Jesus up to this point, right? Matthew lays out a pretty compelling case for like why Jesus will eventually become who he becomes. But up to this point, Jesus hasn't done a whole lot like publicly, right? Uh, and if you're writing a good biography, you're going to like give all of the pertinent details of the story along the way. And it seems as though up to this point, there was nothing pertinent that Jesus did in his life. So that seems to suggest that there wasn't a whole lot that Jesus did up to this point publicly. Now, if you're reading this gospel for the first time, like that might be a, this, this section here might be a, an interesting like development, right? Because we know that this isn't how belovedness works. <laughs> belovedness isn't just simply given. But like belovedness is something that we have to earn, that we have to achieve, that we have to fight for. And once we've earned it and achieved it and fought for it, it's something that has to be maintained, right? When it comes to belovedness, it's something that we, we maintain through this act of like perfection, of like doing everything exactly right, of dotting all of our I's, crossing all of our T's. It's something that is maintained through like what I have to offer or what I can do for you in relationship. If you've been alive for more than like a minute in our world, you know that belovedness isn't something that's just freely given, but it's something that we fight for, that we earn, that we achieve. And so we come to a story like this and we may be like, but that's just not how it works. <laughs> but what if it is? What if Jesus isn't wrong in this story? What if we and our understanding of belovedness are wrong? <laughs> Here's what I mean by this. From the, the very earliest days of the Jesus tradition, so after Jesus' life, his teachings, uh, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, uh, some of the, the greatest thinkers in the world began to like, process through, like, what did we just experience in this person? And as they began to like, mull over this experience that they had in Jesus, they began to come to these certain conclusions. And one of the conclusions that they came to was that Jesus was like fully God. Meaning like, in him, all of God was pleased to dwell. Meaning like in Jesus, we see the clearest image of who God is. So if we want to know what God is like, we only have to look as far as Jesus. But one of the other conclusions that they came to is that Jesus wasn't just fully God, but Jesus was also fully human. Meaning like if we want to know what it means to be human, if we want to know what to do with this like flesh and blood that we have with these thoughts, these feelings, these emotions, these convictions, these passions, these gifts, these talents that we have, maybe the best thing for us to do is to look to Jesus, like the truest human. And so when we come to a story like this, I wonder if there's, there's this divine proclamation of this is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm, I am well pleased, has less to do with the fact that Jesus is fully God and perhaps it has everything to do with the fact that Jesus is fully human. Meaning that when God looks upon humankind, meaning when God looks upon me and you and we and us, perhaps the very first thing that God 
says is this is my son, this is my daughter, this is my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And like, that's good enough news, right? Like Matthew could wrap up his gospel, say, that's it, that's it, I'm done, right? Like God's not angry, God's not wrathful, God isn't against you, but God is for you and with you and God loves you undeniably. And we could be done with that, right? And this feels like good news because this tells us that everything that makes us who we are, like our identity, has little to do with like the successes that we have in our life. It has little to do with perhaps even more so like the failures and the mistakes that we have in our life. Our identity has less to do with um, like our gifts and our talents. It has less to do with our theologies and our politics and all of the other ways that we might show up in the world. But it has everything to do with the fact that when God looks upon us, God says that this is my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. When we ask the question of what's like the truest thing about who we are, I think Matthew's wanting us to know from the very beginning that this is what Jesus was told about himself and perhaps that this is also what we are being told about ourselves as well. Now there's another movement in this story and um, this is where sabbatical comes into it. We're told in the very next line that then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now if you're reading this straight through, you might have like a little bit of like, hold up now. feels a little bit like whiplash, right? Like there's this, you know, lovey-dovey sort of God-Jesus moment of, oh, this is my son. And then it's like, all right, out with you. Out into the wilderness. Go be tempted by the devil out there, right? It's a weird sort of moment, um, particularly this word tempted. Um, I sat with this word a little bit this week and uh, did a little bit of like, what are some options as far as like what tempted means, right? And one of the options that... uh, Um, this word can be translated into is like to try whether a thing can be done. That's an interesting connotation to it, right? Um, Like when I think about it, like uh, I go to the gym, I try to go to the gym uh, regularly uh, and every once in a while I'm tempted to do something. But when I'm tempted to do it, it's not like, well, that bar is going to fall on my neck and kill me. Like (laughs) I don't assume that I'm going to fail, right? But there's times where like, hey, I've been working hard. Like I'm tempted to see if I can lift a little bit more or run a little bit farther or run a little bit faster, right? I'm tempted not to see if I can fail, but I'm tempted to see if a thing can be done. And I think it's interesting as Jesus heads out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. While the devil may have it in in his mind that like, oh, I'm going to see if he's going to fail. Perhaps even this God can redeem and transform it into like not so much a trial, but like a refining sort of thing. Jesus has just been given this like beautiful message and it's time to go out into the wilderness and and refine it a bit. Kind of like a precious metal has to like go through fire to, to be refined, to have its blemishes and imperfections like worked out. Not what I'm saying is that Jesus has per- imperfections or blemishes that needs worked out. Please hear that loud and clear. I don't want to be signed up for Heretics 101 tomorrow. Uh, but I do wonder if Jesus is fully human, like you and I are fully human, perhaps there's some things that like this, this message of belovedness is just too good, Right? And it's going to take a little time for that to like take root in his soul, to begin to like actually permeate the depths of who he is. And maybe like he needs to get away from some of the distractions in life to allow that to like take deep root within him. And so that's what we're told happens next. Uh, we're told that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards he was famished. And the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, 
This is fascinating um, because the tempter comes and tempts Jesus with the very thing he was just told. He has this divine proclamation, you are the son of God. And here the tempter comes and says, if you are the son of God. Um, This is interesting to me because I think that this is often how temptation comes into our life. It comes into like these core components of, of who we are, right? Perhaps not like our main identity, but like the things that we hold near and dear, like our, our partner or our children or our convictions or like our gifts and our talents. And we hear these subtle little temp- temptations of if you loved your partner or your child, or if you actually cared about this, or if you were actually good at this. And so the temp- these temptations come to like these core parts of who we are, and then we're tempted then to prove it. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to prove something in your life, but proving something doesn't always carry with it like our best energy. And oftentimes what can happen is we actually s- sabotage the thing that we're trying to prove. Um, so I grew up in Indiana, which means uh, basketball was a big deal for me. Uh, I might have said at one point in my life that basketball is life. A shout out to Danny Rojas of Ted Lasso. Any fans? All right. All uh, right. Uh, so because basketball was life, uh, I spent a ton of time playing and I learned all of the different games of it, right? So one of the games that we learned to play was pig. Anybody ever played pig? Yeah. All right. So if you've never played, uh, you can play with two people. The first person chooses anywhere on the court to shoot a shot. If they make it, second person has to uh, mimic it. So shoot it in the same spot in the same exact way. If you make it, same thing. First person shoots a shot, second person has to mimic it. But if the second person misses it, they get a letter. P. Move on to the next one. First person makes it again. Second person misses it. They get an I. Move on to the uh, another shot. The first person makes it. Second person misses it. They get a G. Now, because I grew up in Indiana, and when you think of basketball, you think of Indiana, the way that I play these games matters most because we have the utmost official ruling on all things basketball. We always played it when somebody got a G, the first person had to prove it. And you would call it out, prove it. Which means that they have to step up and make the same exact shot from the same exact spot once again. I can't tell you the amount of times that I was in this position of having to prove it. And it could be the most simple shot, but I felt my anxiety and my nerves begin to rise through the roof because like, I had to prove something, right? And so you step up and you're all anxious and you're trying to prove it with all of this nervous energy. And oftentimes you end up sabotaging the very thing that you're trying to prove, right? And this can happen to us whether we're playing pig in our backyard or whether it comes to like these utmost core components of who we are. If we're trying to prove something, it's not our best energy and we often sabotage it and fall flat on our face. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus begins his public ministry with this time of refining the sense of belovedness, this core identity of who he is. Because you can imagine if he didn't, what the rest of his ministry would look like. I think much of his ministry would be trying to prove this belovedness, the sense of being a son of God. And it would be uh, filled with all sorts of like self-centered interest and building up this ego project. But that's not at all what we see happening with Jesus' ministry, is it? But instead, it seems as though during these 40 days, Jesus tapped into this identity of being the beloved, the son of God. And from there, like it was an overpouring of the implications of that, that he had become so permeated with this belovedness that he could go out and do all sorts of like um, self-giving, radical, all-encompassing sort of love to the point that he even said to love and pray for the other, our enemies, those who want to do harm to us. 
Because belovedness has nothing to prove. And so it can do that sort of radical thing. Now, uh, there's a Catholic theologian by the name of Henry Nouwen who wrote a beautiful little book uh, called In the Name of Jesus, where he uh, reflects deeply on the story of the temptations of Jesus. And he boils it down and says that the three temptations of Jesus are this. The temptation to be relevant, to uh, turn stones into bread, to show up in the midst of a need and be relevant in that. Uh, The temptation to be spectacular, to throw himself off the temple and have angels come and save him, to do something flashy, right? And the temptation to be powerful, uh, to uh, bow down before the tempter and then have all of the nations of the, the world be given to him. I think this is a really helpful framework because really, if we boil it down, most of our temptations come into one of these three things, right? As I think about the temptations in my life, they're, they're hardly ever anything like super devious, like breaking or bringing lives down, right? But they're always like these pretty subtle things just whispered below the surface. Which brings me to my sabbatical. Um, so Jesus was led out into the wilderness uh, for 40 days as like a refining of his own sort of belovedness. And uh, as I think about my sabbatical, in some ways it was a bit of like a wilderness sort of experience for me. Now I get it. You're like, oh, didn't you just have three months off? Like, cry me a river, right? Let me explain here. Um, for much of my life, like being a pastor has been like an important thing for me. Um, Middle school, like, I, I felt the sense of call to be a pastor. And from that point on until grad school, like, I was working as if this were going to be the case. And um, being a pastor is like this really beautiful, sacred sort of work that I get to give myself to. Um, and while I'm sure this is w- the case with, like, most jobs or vocations or occupations or whatever, um, I can only speak from my experience that, like, there's an awful lot of temptations that can come with this gig. <laughs> um, and so sabbatical was a chance for me to like step out of the work to like confront some of these temptations. So uh, to let you in behind the curtain, uh, here's how some of these uh, got played out. Now, I'll say from the get-go, all of these are ridiculous when you name them, right? <laughs> but when you're in the work, they don't feel ridiculous, right? And that's why they're tempting, right? Because they, they just seem so part of it all. But as I say them today, I'm like, oh, that's ridiculous. So bear with me here, right? So how about this? The temptation to be relevant. Um, for, the, uh, for all of my sabbatical, I was off of social media entirely, minus Notre Dame uh, Twitter, because, you know, I might have a problem. But uh, <laughs> I was off of, like, Facebook, Instagram, the rest of it. And uh, there's a, a temptation that I feel when there's, like, big worldly sorts of things that happen, like war or injustice or something theological or political, to, like, get on my soapbox, or Facebook, I mean, and like, like throw it all out there, right? Like, I feel this temptation, like, if you want to be a relevant pastor, if you want to be a relevant moral or ethical leader, you need to respond to this in some way. And so, like, I'm off of social media, and, like, stuff happens, right? And I, I feel this impulse of, like, well, well, if I'm not relevant, like, what am I? Unfortunately, like I had, I'd been mulling over the story, and so like I had the answer, like, well, what, am, what I am is the beloved. <laughs> and so every time I felt that impulse, like I had to keep coming back to like, no, that's not who I am, but who I am is the beloved. But it's not just like as it relates to like these big worldly things; it's also like big things in in our lives too, right? Um, 
I was off of social media, so like I didn't know what was happening in a lot of people's lives. Um, now, fortunately, like at church, we had set up plans to like help <laughs> that sort of thing, so nobody was like, "Oh, I'm drowning." Uh, there were people to like help, um, but I, I stepped out of that, so I didn't know like what was going on in people's lives, and I couldn't help. <laughs> uh, and if you're uh, been in like a helping profession before, like that often gets caught up as your identity, right? And there were times where I'm like, I'm, I'm not helping anybody. I'm not relevant. Like, who am I if I'm not helping? And I had to, like, confront that and come back to, like, well, who I am is the beloved. <laughs> and the best way to ever help anybody is to have, like, a, a, a sure sense of that belovedness. Uh, what about this one? Uh, t- the temptation to be spectacular. Uh, so for six years now, I have been preaching almost every Sunday. And let me tell you, it does something weird to your brain. Um, there are times where I read something or hear something or experience something, and the way I process it is as if I'm talking in a sermon. Um, side note, we, Ali and I were watching a, a biography about Pete Buttigieg and his campaign. We lived in South Bend while he was Mayor Pete, so it was fascinating to us. Um, and there was a moment uh, where he's talking with his campaign staff, and he like slips off into his own little world and like starts talking in political speech as he's processing it. And Allie's like, oh, he thinks in, ser- in speeches. That's weird. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> super weird. <laughs> um, but there's this temptation that I feel, and I, I know like other preachers feel this too, that like you're only as good as your last sermon, whatever that means, right? And so for three months, like I didn't make anything. I didn't create anything. I didn't preach anything. And man, there were times that I felt that twitch. And I was like, ah, <laughs> what am I if I'm not preaching? What am I if I'm not spectacular, whatever that means? I'm the beloved. And this last one here, uh, the temptation to be powerful. Um, so we're Mennonites, which means that we have like a pretty low view of leadership, right? Like uh, uh, there's no like one grand poobah. I'm not the, the pope of first Mennonite, right? Like I'm more of a conduit of things. But let me tell you, titles can do things to you. Um, and from time to time, uh, even a, past, a title like pastor can get to you. And so for three months, like, I didn't have my hands on this thing. <laughs> I was like, what am I supposed to do, right? <laughs> and I had to come like, face-to-face with this temptation of like, this impulse to be powerful. Whatever, again, whatever that means in this context. Um, while I was away, I began to... Uh, discover or perhaps more appropriately like rediscover um, that sometimes we need to rest and retreat in order to reclaim and refine our belovedness. That there are times in our life where we can get so caught up in the things of, of life, right? The good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful. Like all of this stuff just gets so intense, so in front of us that we're so caught up in it all the time that it's easy for all of this stuff to begin to compete as our identity, and sometimes the, the best, like to the point that it, like, it doesn't even seem uh, uh, ridiculous, right? <laughs> and yet, like, when we get a chance to step back from it, we get to be able to like, actually like, see these temptations and can say, like, oh, yeah, that is kind of uh, ridiculous, right? Like, <laughs> that's, that's not a healthy sort of thing to, have, to be thinking through. But we don't get that when we're just so caught up in it. So t- sometimes we need to rest and retreat in order to reclaim and refine our own sort of belovedness. Now I get it. Not everybody has the luxury or the privilege to like take three months off of work. Um, again, that's a gift. That's a privilege. I don't. That's not lost on me. Um, but I do wonder if there are uh, just uh, a few things that rhythms that we can implement in our life that can be like a mini sort of sabbatical, if you will. 
Uh, the first one of those is actually shares a core or a root word with sabbatical, and that is Sabbath. You know, we live in like a 24-7, always connected sort of world. And uh, oftentimes that bleeds into like our work and our profession and our jobs and the things that we give ourselves to. And uh, most people that I know feel a sense of like what they do becoming who they are. And this temptation to believe that who I am is what I do. And I don't think that there's uh, far, too many far more radical things than to just stop <laughs> for 24 hours a, a, a week and say like, I'm not what I do, but I am who I am. And so what would it look like in your life if you were able to just hit pause for 24 hours to turn off your phone, turn off email, and to just simply be? Be with your family, be with your friends, be with yourself, be with God. What would that look like? And how might that like, allow us to step out of these temptations and begin to like, reclaim and refine our own sense of belovedness? Maybe you can't do a full 24 hours, but maybe you can do an afternoon, go to the park with your kids. Like, what would that begin to do in your own sort of life, in your own sense of identity and belovedness. Uh, the, the second one here then is social media. So I said I've been off of social media for three months and I have yet to go back and it feels good. <laughs> um, I don't know what your experience with social media is, but uh, beyond all of the friends and people that I follow, I also follow like people who do similar sort of work as me. And it's, quickly, uh, it's easy to like, quickly elevate them to like, the pinnacle of like, what it is that we're supposed to be doing, uh, particularly like, all of these good parts of their life that they're willing to show, right? And so uh, I, I begin to hear this, like, uh, you're not talented enough, you're not smart enough, you're not doing enough, and even like you're not beautiful enough, darn it. And what happened was is I've stepped out of this, like this is one less place where I feel that sort of temptation claiming my own sense of belovedness. Like we live in a capitalist fishbowl, right? Like it's, it's always going to be around us, right? But this is one less, one less place where I'm feeling that temptation that's trying to attack my belovedness. So I would just encourage you, like reevaluate your own interactions with social media. Maybe that means for a Sabbath day, like you're off of it completely. Maybe you give it up totally. Maybe it's just like, eh, there's going to be an hour a day that I don't check it, right? Um, whatever that might look like for you. Uh, friends, if you hear nothing else uh, today, I hope you hear this. Um, when God looks upon you, God says, this is my son, this is my daughter, this is my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. There's going to be all sorts of things that want to compete for that identity in our life. And sometimes what we need to do is rest and retreat in order to reclaim and refine our belovedness. Because the best thing that you can do for yourself and the world around us is to live from that sense of belovedness rather than trying to prove it. So that's that. Um, that was my sabbatical. That's the story uh, that I've been thinking a lot about, praying a lot of, uh, about. And uh, yeah, again, thank you for the gift of a sabbatical. Um, what a profound gift. What a profound privilege. Like, that's not lost on me. Um, let's pray. Loving God, um, we give you thanks for the story. We give you thanks uh, for the gift that is Jesus, who shows us not only who you are, but who we are as well. God, we give you thanks that uh, when you, the creator of all that is, the one who holds all of this in your hands, that when you look upon us, you look and you say that this is my son, this is my daughter, this is my child, the beloved. 
with whom I am well pleased. God, may that like saturate, may that soak, may that take deep root within our souls. And Lord, may we uh, find rhythms in our lives to like rest and retreat, to be able to like refine uh, and reclaim that sense of belovedness and live from that place of belovedness. God, when we hear those temptations whispering, may we hear you loud and clear say, this is my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.